0: Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to this service, and particularly uh, this part of the service. I want to uh, wish you all a happy Easter, and am looking forward to uh, the fact that we uh, can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ together like usual. Um, The fact that many things were canceled these last weeks— unsettled our schedules, but today I'm rejoicing in the fact that Easter is not canceled, and that's because it is a literal historical fact that is a part of history and I think will be fulfilled as we read and study the scriptures, we can discover that um, Jesus' resurrection is actually the first fruits of the resurrection that will come for all righteous saints who die. And we will spend forever with our Lord, our risen Lord, in the presence of his Father. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter nineteen, verse forty-one, and I will be reading this passage of Scripture, on following on through onto chapter twenty, John chapter forty-one, John chapter nineteen, verse forty-one, through John twenty, verse eighteen. I welcome you to follow in your Bibles as I read from mine. John chapter nineteen, verse forty-one. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. The first day of the week cometh Mary, Magdalene, early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed." For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And she said unto her, And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? she saith unto them because they have taken away my lord and i know not whence i know not where they have laid him and when she had thus said she turned herself back and saw jesus standing and knew not that it was jesus jesus saith unto her woman why weepest thou whom seekest thou she supposing him to be the gardener saith unto him sir if thou hadst borne him hence Tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Well, it's Sunday morning in the big city. It's Passover week. There are likely several million people in Jerusalem who have traveled from all over different parts of the world to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, the Jewish Passover. On this particular morning, there are some women walking through the streets of the big city at daybreak. I can imagine among the thoughts that they are thinking are the thoughts, if only, if only, if only Jesus hadn't come to Jerusalem If only the disciples had been able to talk him out of coming for this particular Passover. If only there would have been a way for Jesus to play low key that week instead of mingling and interacting with the vast crowds in the days prior. If only. The desire to reverse the past, to go backward in the story. I've been there. I've been there in times like that in my life. Questions in my mind, questions, images you'd love to erase, opportunities you'd love to have back, situations you'd like to walk backward and have undone, conversations you wish would have gone differently. Here in the text before us, we have a story about a garden, a tomb where something went wrong went way differently than they had expected. Much more terribly than any of the disciples could have thought possible, could have imagined ever take place or could ever be. But they, they really had no idea. They had no, they had no idea that this part of the story, and in my particular situations, when I'm in their condition, my little story is actually part of, of a much bigger story, a much deeper story, and usually a part of a much older story. You see, Mary thinks that she's facing a personal crisis. She thinks that it's a coincidence that she winds up in a garden. The fact is that she is facing an ancient curse. And what is happening right in front of her is God reversing the story of the whole universe all of nearly all of human history up to this point. My title today is the two gardens. The two gardens. And my goal is to show us how that God is reversing the curses from previous times and a previous point in history. And as I preach here, my goal is to point out at least four things that I feel this text shows us that God reversed, reversing the story. The first point here in my outline is reversing the story of corruption. The story of corruption. I want you to notice that this garden is also a cemetery. Since it was so close to Passover, the text tells us, no one really wanted to take Jesus' corpse very far. And so they borrowed the tomb of a rich man who had a tomb close by. And I want to especially notice that it was, according to the Scripture, a new tomb. I see that as a key and interesting point. Now, this cemetery was not necessarily like the cemeteries that we have here in the United States where there are rolling meadows surrounded by white fences. This was likely not a grassy area where people came along with mowers and weed eaters and spreaders with fertilizers and weed control. This is most likely an actual working garden that would have had vegetables growing. Perhaps grape arbors or fruit trees were also in this garden. In verse 2, it is relatively easy to see that Mary thinks when she comes into this garden, she thinks that she has stumbled onto a grave robbery. She approaches the tomb in the garden And she sees the grave clothes, which are obvious, vivid images of the corruption of death, the association of death. She sees the stone rolled away, and she thinks that there's been a grave robbery. The first question she asks the gardener in verse 15 is, Where have they taken him? Where have you carried him? Someone has robbed the grave. Someone has taken the body of this man. A man whose words I believed. A a man that I left everything to follow. The dead body, she thought, had been taken. Well, she was wrong. First of all, the text tells us that she runs back to tell the other disciples what she has seen. And when she comes back with Peter and John in tow, Together they go into the tomb itself. They see the napkin, the folded napkin. They see the grave clothes. They see that the tomb is indeed empty. There is no body. The tomb is not holding a corpse. Peter and John return to their own homes in consternation and confusion, according to verse 10. But Mary stays. She stays by the tomb. She's crying, weeping. And once again, she turns and looks into the tomb. And this time, she sees angels, two of them, where the body of Jesus had been lying. So here's the thing. When what Peter and John or Mary did not understand is that God was taking that age-old curse of corruption and reversing it. The path of corruption that Mary was on and that each of us are on is the corruption of death, the sentence of death that we contend with as human beings that will always be a part of our story until Jesus redeems us until Jesus comes back, until we are in the presence of the Lord, that corruption of death is a part of the human story. Jesus, at this point in time, begins to turn that corruption upside down, to reverse the curse of death. You see, in the earliest parts of human history, there was another garden, another time, Another place, another garden. And when the woman who was in that particular garden ate of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and when the man ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a curse came upon them. And along with that curse that was placed on them was also a curse on the universe. Their bodies started to die. Spiritually, they started to die. Mentally and physically, they started to die. There was radical and progressive decline. The Bible says that the ground over which they toiled and worked was waiting to receive them. And they would turn back someday into the dust that God had used to create them. Besides that... The world that they lived in was suddenly filled with thorns and thistles, weeds, work schedule futility. There were broken relationships and relational conflicts in all its forms. Sorrow, confusion, corruption. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that Jesus, our Lord, That curse on himself. Christ redeemed us, the Bible tells us in Galatians, from the curse of the law being made or becoming a curse for us that we might receive the Spirit through faith. Jesus took all the curses that I deserved and because of the choices that I had made, made, that I made and my ancestors made. But he offers God, the plan of God through Jesus offers me a great exchange. You see, I have broken, we all have broken God's spiritual laws. And in exchange for the curse of breaking God's laws, for the sentence, the penalty of breaking God's laws, Through Christ, we receive a blessing instead. It's an amazing thought. But not only are we blessed, but we become a blessing to others. Like he says in, in Galatians, the blessing of Abraham was not only for Abraham's good, but it was also for the good of the people that he came in contact with. The blessing that we have been blessed with is for others as well. We receive this gift, we receive this blessing through faith. And that is a tremendous, tremendous aspect of the good news of our salvation. Galatians 3 13 and 14 says that Jesus did not merely remove our curses from us, but he actually became a curse. I can't understand that. It has profound meaning that I probably in this life will never understand. Jesus not only took the negative consequences of my or our sinful choices, but he actually struck a death blow to the curse itself. The cursed nature itself was dealt a blow because of what Jesus did. His death set off a chain of events a spiritual chain of events that I probably will never understand in my human condition in my life he became cursed he became cursed so that we would not need to experience and be under the domination of the cursed Nature, there is no longer need, there is no longer any need for anyone to be dominated by the curse of sin. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 bears out that same thought. He became sin for us, who knew no sin. He became the sin offering. He became the payment suitable for the penalty. and the thorns that God had grown out of the ground to remind us of our sin condition. Those thorns were crushed into the head of Jesus. He, the king of the universe, was taken down off the cross, purple, covered in blood, water pouring from his abdomen. Jesus was a dead body, a corpse, he entered into and under the bondage and corruption and the captivity of that curse. And the corruption that was intended for us became his. God reversed the story of corruption. And Mary came into the garden on that particular morning. She came to the garden and to the tomb, expecting to find him, Jesus, in that condition. She was bringing with her spices and ointment, intending to anoint Jesus' corpse, the dead body, pour it over his body, pour it on and into the grave clothes in an effort to keep the corruption or the decay at bay for just a little bit longer. But she didn't find him there. You see, he was no longer in that condition. She didn't find the corruption that entered into the world through the first garden. Instead, she finds angels. Now, angels were also present at that first garden. At the first garden, as you know, there was an angel at the entrance to the garden with a sword to protect the people from the garden and to protect the garden from the people. God said, I won't allow my children to eat of the tree of life and remain in that terrible condition forever. God had a much better a much more complete plan than that. But this angel in this garden has no sword. Instead, he gets Mary to turn around and she is no longer facing the tomb. She is now looking outward facing the garden in verse 14. At this point, she turns around and encounters what she thinks is a stranger. You see, Not only did God reverse the story of corruption, he also reverses the story of alienation. Notice what happens. Mary is standing outside the grave, looking outward to the garden. She sees a person who she thinks is a stranger. She is standing outside the grave, according to verse 11. She thinks she is alone in the garden. She's crying and weeping. Jesus' body is gone. And she thinks that her whole world is coming apart and coming to an end. And at that point, she sees Jesus but does not realize that it is him. She thinks that it's the gardener, a hired hand that was there to do the routine jobs to keep the garden maintained on that particular day. Jesus asks her the question. He asks her a couple of questions. He says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? What's wrong? And Mary immediately starts to pour out to him. She's sobbing and crying. And that's how it went until until he speaks her name. Notice what happens. And verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary. You see, here's the thing. When sin came into the world and when sin comes into our lives it alienates. It separates. It alienates us from one another. And it Alienates us from God. Sin brings death, and death is just another word for separation, alienation. Remember what happened in that first garden? When the woman ate of the fruit and the man ate of the fruit, suddenly they realized that they were naked. And the first response was to hide, to hide from each other, and to hide from God. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that in the cool of the day, God would come to them and be in their midst. God would fellowship with the man and the woman. He would be in their presence. But when he came that day, they were hiding. The scripture says that the man and woman were hiding. They were hiding in the garden. They were hiding in the vegetation. They were hiding in the creation that God had made for them and for their pleasure. So when God calls for them by name, they are shrinking back. They're hiding. They don't want to see him. There is no desire, there is no passion for God in that time. But in this particular garden, something different is going on. Jesus looks at Mary and he calls her by name. He says, Mary, and she instinctively does what a person, what any person does who sees a loved one that they haven't seen. Or there's a passion going on here in Mary's heart and mind. It's the same thing that we would do when we see somebody that we love. She immediately wants to grab him and say, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're okay. I'm so glad you're all right. There is no longer that distance. There is no longer that separation and alienation. And Jesus goes on to speak some amazing and magnificent words. Again, words that I feel I don't particularly understand very well. I have a few thoughts here, though, about verse 17. John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God." Go to my brothers. Tell them that I'm alive. And tell them that I'm I'm returning to my heavenly father. Jesus' brothers, earthly siblings, half-siblings, James and Jude and others, they were hiding, hiding in a room somewhere. And Jesus breaks right into their story right into Mary's story right into the James and Jude his brothers story the disciple's story and he walks right into my story and yours notice how he connects to her story he says your father and mine your god and mine The alienation, the separation that man has known up to this time has now changed. There is connection. There is a bridge. There is openness. There is access that has come on the human race as a result of Jesus' resurrection. And as of the fact that he is alive today gives me access and gives you opportunity to connect with Jesus and with your father, Jesus' father and your Father, your God, and my God. He reverses the alienation that makes us feel like hiding, the fear that keeps us hiding from each other, and the fear that makes us feel like hiding from God or trying to hide from God. Jesus turns that alienation right on its head. He reverses that alienation. The third thing we see here is that Jesus reverses the story of condemnation. When Mary grabs him and says, Teacher, Master, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're okay. Jesus responds to that that gesture by saying that he has not yet ascended to the Father. I'm not sure what all that might mean, but again, I have a few thoughts that I think it might at least partially mean. Jesus says that he's ascending or returning to his Father. Jesus is not hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve. He openly proclaims that he's going where his Father is and he is going to live with his Father. He is going... To be in the presence of his Father, his God, his Father. Like verse 17 says, there is no fear, there is no condemnation, there is no shame whatsoever. He moves right into the presence of God. Well, on the resurrection morning, here in John chapter 20, the roll was called up yonder. And there was really only one name that was able to walk into the presence of God. There was only one name that was able to walk away from the rule of physical death and walk away from the rule of fear and walk straight into the presence of his father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 indicates that the fact is the fact that Jesus resurrected is indicative of the fact that we also will be able to overcome the rule of death. The fact that Jesus resurrected also means that we can overcome the rule of condemnation and sin in our lives. 1 Corinthians. 15 indicates that Jesus was resurrected and overcame the rule of death. And that means that there is or there will be another time when the role will be called up yonder. And we shall be changed, the scripture says. We're going to be raised incorruptible. We will no longer be under the rule of death and condemnation we will no longer be under the sentence that came unto the world because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of the events of that other garden. We will walk, at that moment, we will walk straight into the presence of the Father without any fear whatsoever. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may still be hiding, just like Adam and Eve When God was approaching, they slowed down their movements. They slowed down their breathing, hoping that God would not notice them hiding in the bushes, the leaves, the vegetation, whatever it was they were hiding in. Just like Adam and Eve, there may be some of you who are living as though you thought, as though you think God will not notice, that God will not find you that somehow God does not already know about the rebellion in your life that is present in your heart. Brother, sister, there is a day coming. There is a day of judgment coming where truth will be presented about your life and mine. And in that moment, we will know that it is the truth. We will know that it is absolutely true, that what is spoken is true, and if our sins are not sent ahead to judgment through Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, at that moment we will stand guilty. But the reality and the glory of the gospel is that Jesus has already stood in that place of condemnation. He has already paid the price. He has already stood in that place of condemnation. Jesus has already taken that damnation upon himself. He has already taken every bit of hell on himself that you and I deserve. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I'm just going to be reading portions of it here. It says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make an o- his soul an offering for sin, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. Backing up just a little bit in verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was so thoroughly and completely absorbed in the will of the Father that he could say with absolute confidence, I am returning to my Father. I am ascending to my Father. I am not afraid to be in his presence. But the tremendous news for me and for all of us is that Jesus is also not ashamed of us. As he says here, go tell my brothers, go tell my brothers in verse 17, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. The connection is hard for me to miss. Go tell my brothers. He reverses the story of condemnation. The fourth thing that we see here is that he reverses the story of deception. He reverses the story of deception. One of the details that is really significant here is that he's talking to a woman in this particular garden. The scripture tells us that in that first garden, the serpent also approached a woman and he deceived her. Scripture tells us further that Satan used Eve to speak to Adam and invite him to join her in rebellion. And Genesis 3, God said, Eve, you listen to the serpent, and Adam, you listen to Eve, and both of you are deceived. Here in June, in John 20, Jesus talks to Mary. He confronts the lies that she has been thinking. He corrects her imagination and the things that she, the assumptions that she's been making. And Jesus shows her the truth about himself. And then he sends her to tell the truth to others. The truth was that he's alive. You have to go to the book of Matthew to see that Mary is actually not the only person. She is not the first person there in the garden on that particular morning. There had been soldiers, guards watching the tomb. These soldiers saw the angel of the, of the Lord descend from heaven. They witnessed the violent earthquake that took place on that morning. They saw the angel rolling away the stone. They noticed that his appearance was like lightning. They saw that his clothes was, were white like snow. They heard the angel proclaim that Jesus was written, risen and the tomb was empty. But those same soldiers took a large sum of money to broadcast the story that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body. And the strategy of Satan is and always will be for us to be blinded to what is truth and blinded to what is right in front of us. You see, if indeed Jesus is risen, and he is That also means that one day he will be the judge. Not only does Jesus' resurrection qualify him as the Son of God, as the Lord from heaven, but it also qualifies him to be our judge. And for the believer, that is one of the most comforting things. That is one of the most comforting thoughts possible. But for the unbeliever, though, it is a fearsome thought. And the way unbelievers deal with that fear is to connect it with false narratives, just like these soldiers did. Well, Jesus is reversing that story of deception. He did that for Adam and Eve. And I want to show you how he did that also for Mary Magdalene. You see, Mary Magdalene is not just some cardboard figure that moves across the flannel board. Mary used to be involved in the occult, The Bible tells us that when she first met Jesus, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She was the kind of woman that many people would be afraid of. But instead of listening to those demonic voices, Mary started to listen to the voice of Jesus. She started to obey the voice of Jesus and to follow Jesus with her whole heart. Jesus Obviously, knew her story. Jesus loved her. Jesus redeemed her. And it is so significant to me that Jesus chose Mary Magdalene. He chose Mary Magdalene, a woman. He chose Mary to take the story of the resurrection to the disciples who took it to others. Who took it to others? Who took it to others? Who took it to others? Who, to others, who told some other people who told it to me. And now I'm standing here telling it to you. The story that Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is the Lord of all. Jesus used this formerly demonized, occultic, and hopeless woman to save the world with the truth of the resurrection and the message of the gospel. He reversed the story of deception. And the incredible message of the gospel is that through Adam, every one of us is under the curse of sin. Every one of us is under the the corruption of the curse of death and the curse of corruption. But through Christ, any of us can have that curse removed. Any of us can hear him calling us by name. Any of us can walk in newness of life. Any of us can walk away from the condemnation of our old sins and live, any of us can live a life of faith and freedom and obedience. Mary Magdalene did, and so can you. Isaac Watts was one of the great hymn writers in church history. And I guess nothing shows that better than the fact that he wrote one of his most famous hymns by accident. The classic Christmas carol, Joy to the World, was not written to be a Christmas carol. In fact, in its original form, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It was not even written to be a song. Joy to the World was written in 19, I'm sorry, 1719. 1719, Isaac Watts published a book of poems, with each poem being based on a psalm from the book of Psalms. And one of those poems was an adaption of Psalm 98. And more than a century later, over a hundred years later, This poem was slightly modified and set to music to give us what has become one of the most famous Christmas carols ever. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And I especially appreciate verse three No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you that you are alive and that you are resurrected and that you have reversed the curse of corruption, that you have made a way possible for us, each one of us, every one of us who are listening, every one of us who pays attention to the Word of God can come under the freedom that is brought about as a result of your being raised to life. The power that raised up Jesus from the dead is that same power that works and can work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that all of us would live and realize that power to live under the freedom that comes with that power and that in our own lives, the curse of corruption and sin, the rule of death would be broken in our lives, spiritually and physically and emotionally. Someday we believe that you will come back And that you will raise us up to be at your right hand and in your presence forever. We look forward to that day and we rejoice that you have made that way possible for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.